Hello, this is Fiona from Indie Life Podcast Team. Welcome to this week's Scottish Independence Podcast. This week we have an episode of our Mobby's Eye show and we're looking at Scotland's pathways back into Europe. We have a very special guest with us, Dr. Kirsty Hughes, who is a writer and former director of the Scottish Centre for European Relations. Kirsty explains the accession process, the timescales, the benefits available while you're going through the process, and what kind of choices we might have to make along the way. So, hope you enjoy it. So the idea for doing this particular edition came from our previous one, which was about borders. And out of that, we sort of realised that we didn't quite know enough detail about various options open to Scotland. Out of that, we approached Kirsty, and just in the course of talking to her, this phrase kept um, emerging pathways to Europe. And it's a fascinating discussion. You're really going to enjoy this one. And a lot of the things that we thought were complicated actually are. Um, (laughs) And Kirsty walks us through them really in such a helpful way. The main part of this show is that discussion with Kirsty. And then at the end, we've also got a little perspective from Neil Richmond, one of the Irish politicians, shows Ireland's attitudes to Europe And they're much closer to Scotland's attitudes than they are to anything we've heard in Brexit. That's worth holding on for and just catching that little bit at the end because it really is quite an eye-opener. What I really appreciated with talking to Kirsty is that she, she does not shy away from the complexities that are involved, but she has this just really good knack of of being able to say well it would be that and then that and so you you get left with yes it's complex but it's also one thing at a time she shows it can be planned, I yeah. think, is the thing I, yeah. I really liked. Yeah. 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 So without any yeah. further ado, let's get on to Dr. Kirsty Hughes. The first question to you is, what happens when a country asks to join the EU? There are a whole series of steps that happen when a country applies to join the European Union. And... You know, the bottom line is it's like any club that the existing members get to decide at the end of the day whether you can join or not. So the basic starting point is that any European country can apply to join the European Union. Um, And back in the 80s, Morocco applied and was told, well, it's not European, so no, it couldn't apply. And, And when Turkey applied, and it is now a candidate, though its negotiations are very much stuck if not frozen there was a big discussion around well is turkey european or not or it's on the border with asia and so on so i think scotland doesn't face any of those questions scotland is a european country scotland is entitled to apply to join the european union if it's an independent country and obviously scotland was already a part member of the the european union as Mm. part of the united kingdom for 47 years which is not insignificant to how the process could work so The first stage is, you probably have some informal discussions with EU and European Commission officials as well as EU politicians first, but you basically, you put in a a letter to the European Commission and you say, we would like to apply to join the European Union. The Commission then goes away and considers whether, whether Scotland meets the criteria to be declared a candidate country. 
and it makes that recommendation to the European Council, in other words, to the 27 political leaders of all the EU member states. And I'm sure a lot of your audience will, will have heard at some point of this phrase, the Copenhagen criteria. These, these are criteria used to assess whether you can become a candidate country for accession to the European Union. And they were actually introduced almost 30 years ago after the Berlin Wall came down and, and there was that whole yeah. long group of yeah. countries from Poland to Hungary wanting to join. And there are political criteria and there are economic criteria. And there's also a broad criteria about can the country, can Scotland, is it going to be able to take on and apply all that huge body of EU law? And then if you're declared a candidate country, there is an a bit of a pause before talks immediately start and the European Commission will do more screening of where is the country at, where is Scotland at, to what extent do its laws already meet EU laws. And it's not only about laws, it's also about regulatory structures, what sort of competition authority has got, what sort of environmental body, look at its democratic structures and so on and so forth. And when they're ready, then they will enter negotiations and that's at the moment broken down into 35 different, in the jargon, they call them chapters. This is a technical and a political process. So mm. I'm really talking you through the technical side. But at any point, the member states get to say whether to open a, the next chapter or not. Are they ready to discuss with the Scottish officials who will be doing most of the technical negotiation? Are they ready to discuss the economy? Are they ready to discuss crime and justice? Are they ready to discuss trade? Do they go through it you know, in an order of those chapters or can they have several chapters open at the same time, if you see what I mean? No, they can certainly have several chapters yeah. open at the same time. That, again, is going to depend partly on the member states, you know, and this can be highly political. If, if you look at, for instance, the Western Balkan candidate countries like Serbia and North Macedonia, those processes have been very, very slow and uh, almost, I'm probably not true to say a complete sequential opening of chapters. But if member states want to move slowly because yeah. they're, they're not sure countries are ready or they're not sure the EU is ready, or for instance, Kosovo, which isn't a candidate because it's not yet recognized by all EU member states. So politics can certainly yeah. intervene. And you wouldn't open all 35 no, no, because that's no. too much as well. Yeah. But, but no, you don't have to do it one at a time. So say then we work through those chapters, what happens next? Well, if you've worked through all those chapters, and, and, and while you're working through them, normally candidate countries do get so-called pre-accession assistance, which is a nice way to say some funding. So hopefully there might be some, some funding available for some of the things that we, that we would have to do. If everything is completed, then the European Commission goes back again to the European Council, the political leaders, and says... We're, we're done and right. Scotland's ready to join. Now, of course, there may be some specific little adjustments that have been negotiated with Scotland. So there may be some transition periods that are specific to Scotland for whatever reason. When yeah. Denmark yeah. joined back when at the same time as the UK, there was a little deal around purchasing of holiday homes in Denmark. To, they were worried that they'd all be taken over by Germans <laughs> flooding north. Is there any particular chapter that you think might need a bit more work on or does it seem fairly straightforward given that, you know, until recently we were in the EU? It does depend how far we've diverged from EU law. 
And that's why um, what Liz Truss um, yeah. is up to with her, her new government is rather important, actually, to this, because if there is a really hasty repeal of, of lots of EU laws in the coming years, and, and this is laws over almost half a century, as you know, you know, this is yeah. laws that yeah. regulate the chemical industry, health and safety, yeah. workers' rights, yeah. so on and so forth. So if Scotland can't avoid being caught up in that, and if it's major, though I think they'll find it hard to move very quickly on it. If it's major, then that means it will take more time to reinstate those laws and and to show that you're implementing them. One of the things that the EU discovered as it negotiated with the Central and East European countries after the Berlin Wall came down was it's one thing that countries pass the law, but another that something's really being implemented, mm, you know, there are yeah, checks and controls. Yeah. So the more the UK diverges, the slower it may be for Scotland. But I don't think that means necessarily particular transition periods. I think there is the the ever-returning question of the currency. What will Scotland be doing when it applies for the EU? Will it be using the pound or will it already have a Scottish currency? So if it is using the pound, though, you know, looking again at what the trust government are doing, the pound yeah. have collapsed so far, yeah. that may, may no longer be a sensible policy. But if it is, that that will be something tricky to talk through about yeah. well when is Scotland either going to have its own currency or join the euro and can it have a transition period or would yeah. it have to wait before it conjoins yeah. Yeah. So, so that's one issue I think all the border issues should have been resolved before joining I don't really see why there would be any transition issues the transition in a sense will have happened before you know if on day one of independence you have a certain trade relationship with the rest of the UK and a certain trade relationship with the EU in in the next few years before you negotiate and join the EU you will have already seen what was coming unlike with Brexit you yeah. know there's no need to do it in in, in the way Boris yeah. Johnson did it. There will need to be, if we're to be in the common travel area, there'll need to be an opt-out from the Schengen border-free area, just as uh, Ireland has, but then that will be part of the negotiations. Yeah. So things like opt-outs, permanent opt-outs, that will have to be agreed before the Commission goes to the Council and says, we're ready, let's have an accession treaty. Um, whereas things like currency especially, yeah, may need a transition. Yeah, yeah. this whole process, what would you think, several years? It may take several years. I mean, I, I've in the past said anything from three or four to five years, so I don't see it necessarily taking that long. And it's it's interesting, again, even though an independent Scotland's situation would be very different and, and in many ways much, much better than the countries like Czech Republic and yeah. Poland in, in the 1990s, the EU actually delayed opening talks with those countries till 1998. But the result of that was they'd actually done so much work yeah. uh, adopting EU law before they started talks. The talks were actually remarkably quick. And, and one group took four years and one group took two yeah. years. And, and yeah. then it all happened. And, and then you have the EFTA countries that were Finland and Austria and Sweden. And they all decided to join the EU in the mid-90s instead of joining the European Economic Area with Norway. They took about a, a year and a half. Um, yeah incredibly quick because they had already adjusted all their legislation. Now, more things have happened in the EU since then. You know, there's more cooperation on crime and justice. There's the euro, there's the Schengen area, which I, I talked about, the border free area. So depending on the timing, 
Scotland isn't going to be as quick as say Finland and Austria, but it might not be, it might not be too far behind. But then we have to look again at the politics of this. And yeah. if you look at what's happened recently, you know, I, I think it was a very good and the right political choice that Ukraine has been made a candidate country, that Moldova has been made a, a candidate country. But what, what you're seeing alongside that and alongside this very slow Western Balkans accession process is a nervousness from some of the EU member states. There's always been countries like France and the Netherlands yeah. that have been yeah. a bit uneasy about enlargement and, and diluting the way the EU works. And what they're starting to say is we can't actually let more countries in until we reorganize our, ourselves and our own procedures. Now, they did that in the 1990s. That was one of the excuses for delaying a bit the East Europeans. But what they did was they actually agreed a couple of new treaties called the Amsterdam and Nice treaties, and then they let them in. Now, that may be more complicated with countries like Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia if it becomes yeah a candidate. So I think if Scotland in two years time, or three years time, you know, was independent and ready to go, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. it would have to hope it wasn't going to get caught up in a caught sweeping up. thing about we're not, we're not ready. But I think if you, you know, if you think Iceland did apply to join the, the EU just after the financial crisis, and then it decided it didn't want to <laughs> after all, but it, it's very hard to imagine a country like Iceland or Norway already in the single market would be slowed down or halted while countries like yeah. Ukraine or Serbia are on a much a much slower track. But I think my point here is, yeah. nonetheless, you need to keep an eye on that broader yeah. politics. Yeah. During that however many years when we're in negotiating, does the EU offer any trade benefits or trade arrangements you know, in the interim while that's happening? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so what's typically happened in, in the last few decades is the EU negotiates a, a, a trade agreement that goes under the name of an association agreement. And in fact, Ukraine has, has one of those that had it before becoming a, a candidate country. The Western Balkans have stabilization and association agreements. So you would expect that that would be negotiated pretty rapidly and that would be in place um, opening up markets. I mean, and, and these agreements don't just set a fixed terms of trade. They can sort of say, well, as you show you meet the criteria for services ah. or the criteria for goods, then we may take steps to remove tariffs or to remove checks or, or whatever it is. And that's why, as I said earlier, my expectation very much would be that as you move through a decision for independence, actual independence, and the application to the EU and eventual membership, it will be a process you can plan and that you can give individuals and businesses and organizations clarity over what, when, because a lot of people say, let's join EFTA because we could join EFTA on day one. Now there is a question of what happens on, on day one, but speed is not necessarily always good. You know, you've got to adjust to what is going to happen at the Scotland-England border. And you've got to adjust to opening the border back up to the European Union. And you've got to think where the costs and benefits, if you like, are going to land. So you don't want it to take 20 years, and it's not going to take 20 <laughs> years. But you don't need to do it on, on day one necessarily. Even, I mean, I don't particularly think it's possible to do it on day one, but it, it's not necessarily a good idea. But yes, there will be this association agreement with the European 
union, you know, the negotiations could move very quickly. They, they could take maybe just two years, but then you've got to ratify the accession treaty and that could take one to two years. And then as well as the currency, obviously I didn't mention earlier the other big question that comes up all the time, which is, which is about the EU deficit rules. And so the question is going oh, to yeah. be what sort of deficit does independent Scotland have? How high is it? What are the EU rules at the time? How long will it take Scotland to meet those rules? And can it get a transition period if it needed one? Especially in um, independence supporting, you know, presence on uh, social media. Recently, I've heard quite a lot of people saying, well, of course, we should just join EFTA. And the UK has just done a trade deal with EFTA. So that would immediately solve any of the, you know, um, the scare stories set up by the union side about, you know, we wouldn't be able to trade with uh, with England. So is that actually true? Is there a trade deal that the UK has done with EFTA countries and, and would it work like that? I think it is more complicated than, than that. So, <laughs> of course, there may be scarce stories, but there is also reality. So and if you think yes. that Brexit and everything a lot of us said about Brexit and putting a border between the UK and the rest of the EU being a very bad idea. Well, it was a very bad idea. Okay. So uh, the UK has not stopped trading with the EU, but it has put bureaucracy and costs in the way. And, and a, a huge number of smaller firms have stopped trading with the EU. Um, so there are border challenges and there will be some border costs. But that doesn't stop you. I think people sort of go to black and white extremes sometimes. We're not going to stop trading with the UK. The question is just what, what will the cost be of putting eventually an EU external border between Scotland and the, and the rest of the UK? And there are no magic fixes to that. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got two borders once you're independent that you're most concerned about, the one to the EU and the one to the rest of the UK. And as you take down one, you're going to, to increase the other. That's not true in all areas, notably in free movement of people. If you're in the EU, you, you get back our, our lost free movement of people and the right to live and work and travel freely. If we're in the yeah. common travel area with Ireland and the UK, then we'll have that, that freedom of movement. So that's actually a win-win. But in other areas, for instance, manufactured goods, interestingly, Scotland exports, although it exports more to the UK than to the EU, it exports more or less the same amount of manufactured goods to the EU as it does to the rest of the UK. So if you take away, a, say, a 5% cost of now exporting to the EU, um, but you put on a 5%, I'm just making that figure yeah, up, yeah, you know, yeah, a small yeah, cost yeah, of yeah. exporting manufactured goods to the rest of the UK, and the goods are the same amount, then there's no net cost. And in fact, with the EU being a much, much bigger market um, than the rest of the UK, and perhaps Scotland would be very attractive to foreign direct investment, you could argue that's, that's a potential plus. Yeah. And so the biggest chunk of Scotland's trade with the rest of the UK is services. So the real question, you know, you have to come down a level from that, just that, oh, we trade three times more with the rest of the UK than the EU, to the question of, how will we manage services trade? What will the barriers be? Will we have to set up agreement on mutual recognition of qualifications? Yeah. Certainly, that ought yeah. to be relatively easy because we've already, you know, we've already got different education systems, but we work, you know, throughout the UK and so on. So it should be a lot easier, I think, 
to sort out some parts of services trade than it is for the UK having cut itself off from 27 other countries. Um, but there are some costs and there's no way around it. Yeah. So to come back to the EFTA question, you do have to decide as, as an independent Scotland where you are trying to get to. So your day one, and you're probably you're going to have to have been thinking about this since the vote and as you negotiate. I, actually, I don't think it'll happen on day one. We'll all be recovering from the hangover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But on day one of independence, if you're no longer part of the UK-EU trade and cooperation agreement, so the trade deal, how are you going to continue trading with the EU? And... On what basis, under World Trade Organization rules and everything else, do you then trade with the rest of the UK? So unless you want there to be some instant sort of barriers in both directions, there, there is yeah. a, you know, it may only be a few months, but you will need to have planned ahead. So, so yeah. yeah, so it won't matter if you have a hangover on the day because you'll, <laughs> you'll have planned beforehand. And, and there's going to be a gap between winning the referendum and independence day and you know that itself is a whole other set of negotiations that's that's going to happen with the westminster government but presumably that time's also the one to be looking ahead to think about that kind of question that you've just asked yes i think that's right and i think if you think about again about brexit there were actually two negotiations first of all there was a withdrawal agreement and that dealt with the rights of eu citizens and british citizens in the eu with money and, and with Northern Ireland. And then a year later, there was a trade deal. So you could, with the, the UK, you could imagine having a kind of twin track. So you, you negotiate the divorce settlement, but you also negotiate basis for trade, trade agreement um, for day one of independence. I think oh. you're going to have to bring the EU into that because of the trade and cooperation agreement. So the trade and because of the withdrawal agreement. So at the moment, Scotland protects the rights of EU citizens already living in Scotland under that agreement. And it's done it with much more constructive positivity, obviously, than, than the Boris Johnson government did. But it's going to have to recommit to that. There, there'll be a dividing line in, in between Scottish and English or rest of UK waters and fish and issues like that. So although normally what I would say to you is, well, the EU won't negotiate anything with Scotland until it's a state, actually there's going to have to be mm. some sort of interesting three-way talk three -way, yeah, UK, Scotland and EU about, well, what happens to the trade and cooperation agreement? Do we need to amend it? How is it going to change? And to my mind, the conclusion I've come to on that is, is that actually what you want is a, is a transition period that maybe for the first year or longer, but at least for a year, you might keep Scotland in that trade and cooperation agreement. So there wouldn't be, there would be an open border between Scotland and England, and there would be the same border between Scotland and the EU as there is now for that year. But the difference being that Scotland is then an independent state, it can negotiate the association agreement, with yeah. the EU and it can consider the implications of what sort of trade deal it needs on a temporary basis with the UK, uh, given that association agreement. I say temporary because of course, if you go, you know, if three years later or four years later, you're in the EU, then, then the trade yeah. agreement is 
is the EU one. And so to go back to your after question, it's a bit of a long way around, but to go back to it, that's why I, I was saying it's a choice. So if you want to go and join the European Economic Area, to do that, you first of all do need to join EFTA, and then you can ask to join the European Economic Area. Um, and point to note, all the EU member states are in the European Economic yes. Area. So you're going to have to get agreement of all of them, and you're going to have to show that you meet all the single market criteria, just as you would in accession talks with the EU. So I think the idea that you could do that on day one, uh, or even within a couple of months, I, th I think is mis conceived but more to the point perhaps there's two routes if you want to join the eu you tell that to brussels pretty quickly because there's no reason why you you know you want this to take six years when it could take four or something and then you agree as fast as possible the association agreement um, depending on if you're having a transition being part of the uk eu deal or you say no well we still maybe want this transition period with the uk eu deal but then we're going to join after eea so they're alternatives one is not the route to yeah. the other yes right well on the one hand it sounds like such a lot of work and such a lot of detail yeah. to think through but on the other hand i'm also getting the impression well yeah there are definite there's a definite pathway obviously there's a definite mm. pathway into the eu but all sorts of other pathways and at a certain point yeah decision needs making you said people say there's a, a uk after trade deal yeah. Um, but there were actually, again, just, just as with the EU because of Brexit, firstly, the UK agreed a, a sort of withdrawal, a separation agreement, it was called, with the EFTA members who are in the single market. So Switzerland is not in the European Economic Area, but Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein are. So it, it uh, agreed a withdrawal agreement with them, a separation agreement. And then a year later, it did two separate trade deals, one with the three who are in the European Economic Area, Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein, one with Switzerland, because Switzerland has its own very specific yeah. Yeah. Um, deal with the EU. And I think what that tells you, without going into you know, too much detail, is that the sort of trade relationship you negotiate with the EFTA countries depends on their own relationship with the EU. And so Scotland wouldn't be straight away in the EEA or it won't get a Swiss type deal. So anyway, it will need its own specific route. So there isn't a simple shortcut, but yeah, as you say, there are pathways. You yeah. just have to decide your pathway and you might have, you're going to have a government on day one of independence. Uh, you won't have had a general election. So presumably relatively swiftly, yeah. there will be a general election. And whether Scotland's going to join the EU or not can be tested in can that be, election yeah. and later in another referendum if that's what people want. But I think the, the temporary government or the government that will have negotiated the divorce and will be in power on Independence Day, it will have to say for the time being which direction they're going. So to make sure that Scotland isn't just in some, you know, hole with putting up new and unnecessary barriers in all directions, it will have had to say which direction it's going. But but again, my idea that you could have a one-year transition period yeah. stay part of the UK-EU deal, in a sense, it gives you time, it just gets you over that hole, and then you can decide. You probably the crystal ball to kind of, you know, <laughs> say much about what might happen with the, uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, but does that make any big difference to what an independent Scotland would be doing? I think it does, though not, not necessarily in the way that people often assume or hope. I, I think some people in Scotland hope that 
if a deal is done with the Northern Ireland Protocol, that it kind of will show how easy borders can be. But I, I think you have to remember that this is a very specific deal. Yes. Northern Ireland, for the moment, yes. is part of the UK, the Good Friday Agreement, and so on and so forth. Scotland is going to be an independent state, like Ireland or France or Netherlands, and applying to join the EU. So if you're, if you're looking at what to learn about borders for an independent Scotland, you need to look at how the UK trades with Ireland or how the UK trades with France, not at how it trades with a part of the UK called Northern Ireland. So in that sense, it doesn't tell us anything. But I think, um, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the election in in two years' time. But if Labour came in, I think we know that there would be agreements on sensible things like um, animal and plant health and food um, criteria, um, which, which would immediately take a lot of the bureaucracy away, not only from the Northern Ireland Protocol, but if you agreed it across the board with all the EU 27, it would ease all borders. So even if the trust government did a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol, but only applied it to Northern Ireland, that wouldn't necessarily ease other borders. But if anything applies to the whole EU, that will certainly help. And so whatever one thinks of Labour or Starmer government, some of the things that they might be likely to do would help. But I think more of concern for Scotland is, is there a deal done on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Or is there a huge row which conceivably could end up in a trade war? It could conceivably end up in the EU suspending the trade and cooperation agreement. Um, And again, that's going to depend on on timings and on when, when a Scottish independence referendum happened. But, you know, in that scenario, we'd end up trading with the, the EU on, on World Trade Organization terms. Whereas if it's been solved, I mean, you know, we're recording this on, on the day of this quite extraordinary deregulatory mini budget. Um, so this looks like a, an absolutely out of control, gung-ho ideological government um and also if it deregulates as much as it says it's going to do that's also going to threaten the trade deal with the eu you know because because they uh boris johnson promised a so-called level playing field if there's a deal on the northern ireland protocol there will be better relationships between the eu and uk president macron had this idea of a wider so-called european political community and it's going to have its first tentative meeting uh, at the start of October in Prague. And at the moment, Liz Truss hasn't said if she'll go or not. And I think the assumption of being the UK wouldn't go. But if it does go, again, that's about better relations. So I, I think there's a political dividend for an independent Scotland, actually, if yes. the UK is getting on better with its neighbours. And then yes. there's a political negative if it's getting on really badly and, and the trade deal has been upended and that obviously impacts on on the currency question yes. the pound is collapsing yes. the collapse. yes. i mean it's hard to tell isn't it you know it's with um well it's not a new government in westminster but with a certainly a shift over to the right wing and, and a new oh. a new prime minister what we've heard her say in the last over the last few months she's been talking to tory party members you know so that's who she was talking with to, to get them to elect her as, as the leader so in a way we haven't heard maybe too much about what would be in her real life as a prime minister but i know you you could feel strongly that like she cannot afford to just ignore 
the EU. Yes, and I think in terms of the Northern Ireland dimension of that, Liz Truss, as Foreign Secretary, introduced in June the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which threatens to overrule some elements of that international agreement, overrule some of the border controls that Boris Johnson knowingly agreed and signed as an international yes. agreement, and take away the, the role of the European Court of Justice. So the EU, the Brussels, are trying to play this very calmly, not to create a crisis, to keep offering ways to simplify the border to Northern Ireland and, and so on and so forth. But what they've made very clear is if the Northern Ireland bill goes through, and it's, it's due in the Lords in October, it's already had its second reading in the House of Commons, that it will have to act. So I think something to look at in the coming months is, is there a deal? And I mean, this trust could slow down the passage of this bill, you know, so it gives them more and more time, but she can't slow it down forever. And the problem is she's very much in hock to the far right of the Tory yeah. party and the European yeah. Research Group and, and so on. So does she put relations with the US as well as the EU and peace in Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland ahead of keeping her supporters on the Tory backbenches happy? I mean, Boris Johnson threatened to do this with his internal market bill two years ago that also had um, clauses that would have uh, overruled the, the deal with the EU. And he took them out because, I mean, he was a great one for, you know, going <laughs> to the edge and then stepping back. We don't know yet if Liz Truss will do that. You know, she said on her way to the UN uh, there wasn't going to be a, a US-UK trade deal, which is like, so, so what was Brexit for? Well, maybe it was for this mad deregulatory budget today. Um, but the UK is relatively isolated after Brexit and its relationship with the US in security terms, especially at the time of the Ukraine war, is extremely important. And she will have got a very clear message from Biden on the Northern Ireland Protocol. But we don't know. We will, we will have to wait and see. But that's the one to watch. Does the bill go through? In which case we are on very, very tricky ground economically and politically not only yeah. in, the, in Northern Ireland, but, um, you know, in, in relations to the EU, um, the, the pound investment, or does she follow a rational path? And I, I can't call that one. We just don't know, I know, and, and it's not exactly reassuring to hear her saying how great a system trickle-down economics is when all the evidence is that it has never worked. It's, uh, it's led to a lot of inequality, but... No, and I think on that, you know, what they're doing is... Uh, at the macro level, you know, they're vastly increasing debt and then giving much more money to the rich than the poor. There's no reason to think, you know, that that will stimulate growth. What will stimulate growth? And of course, she doesn't seem to talk about climate friendly or sustainable yeah. Yeah. growth, but we know it's about investment infrastructure, investment in people, in social infrastructure, as, as well as business investment, it's, it's a complicated, you know, you need that detail uh, to increase productivity. You don't, you don't just need rich bankers getting richer. And, yeah. you know, the pound has already fallen uh, to, to a decades long low. And I think it, it's going to fall further. And even with the energy package she's, she's proposed, you know, there's going to be inflation and pressure on living standards. There's going to be lots of 
strikes and unrest. They're also going to, going to limit uh, the right to strike. You know, they're they're attacking people on benefits again. So we're heading into an extraordinary period in the UK. I mean, it's in many ways extraordinary in the rest of Europe because of the energy prices and, and Russia's uh, attack on Ukraine. But but the idea that with two years to go to an election, we're in this mad sort of deregulatory rush and you know crumbling nhs crumbling infrastructure climate targets everything's going out the window and so you add to that what we're talking about today the eu uk crisis and relations and and so forth um it looks extremely chaotic and unstable ahead is what i would say and so then you bring you know you say well what if in two years well we're going to have a general election and that's going to be a a referendum of of sorts but it's not it's not going to well we're going to see politically what pressure that might put on the uk government but in you know in two or three years time what might an independent scotland look like compared to the state of the uk uh and we we don't know so so coming back to your very first question of, of borders well, what is the UK's relationship with the EU going to look like in two or three years' time? Is it going to be relatively sane and sensible? Is there still going to be a trade and cooperation agreement? Might the borders be made less hard through a, a Labour government? Or is there going to be an ongoing trade war? And so the circumstances in which Scotland may be becoming independent and looking at its own border with England, you know, there's there's different paths on there. Yes, every now and again I think, oh, if only, if only we'd done it in 2014, what a different position we would be in. Be in well, now, and I know. always suspect that if that had happened, you know, if Scotland had gone for independence in 2014, there wouldn't have been a Brexit, yeah, Brexit. vote. Yeah, yeah. So th- th- this week there was the latest British social attitudes survey results that came out. It's, it's coming up with this figure of 52% in favour of independence. Mm up from 23% back in 2012. So, and it's also got this other statistic about back in 2016, 44% of Scots who'd voted Remain, 44% were in favour of independence. And that's now gone up to 65% of Remainers. It does look like there's increasing evidence for people in Scotland, say particularly Remainers, becoming more and more convinced about independence as the path to go. So that's at least a, a bit of a, at least, at least this week, I thought that was at least one bright kind of news item that, that came across. No, absolutely. I, I think um, that that is a very important annual survey. Obviously, um, people are saying rightly it, it was done last autumn because it's a much yes, bigger yeah. than the normal opinion. Yeah polls but it gives you that that sense of depth and breadth and it gives you the trend over time irrespective of what's happened in the last in the last year and i was looking at this week actually at some some of the panel based polls from this summer and i think in july it had 51% in favor of independence in august that went down to 49% so it's not neither of those are so yeah. far off that bigger social survey what's very interesting about the the august one so the 49% for yes they asked people well uh, it was in the middle of the tory leadership election you know what if liz Truss became prime minister and then the figure went up to 52 <laughs> percent 
Interestingly, they also said, well, what if Boris Johnson remains prime minister? Though obviously he wasn't going to. And again, it went up to 52%. So it actually seemed that when you talk to people in a poll about the specifics, you remind them of, of which Tory leader is in power, it actually gives a boost uh, to independence. So, I mean, I, I th certainly think the way Liz Truss is going, both in her attitudes to, to Scotland and, and to devolution and to the First Minister and so on, and, and to, you know, not allowing a referendum in our, our so-called voluntary union, yeah. and in this extraordinary damaging economic and political path she's on, that can only put up support. It can only increase support yeah. for independence. Yeah. And as you say, it's absolutely true that, that if you looked at the 2014 vote, followed by the subsequent Brexit vote, there, there was no big difference between being pro-Remain or, or leave according to your independence vote. But since the decision to leave, then being pro-independence has been very much associated with also being Remain. And that doesn't mean I have, you know, every respect for those people who say, no, no, we think an independent Scotland should join the European economic area. That's a perfectly valid yeah. argument to make. I don't particularly agree with it for, because it still gives you a border to the rest of the UK and it doesn't give you much democratic say. Um, but yeah, the majority um, of those in favour of independence are also remains. Yes, yes. So it does seem that what's going on in what are predominantly English politics and actually now predominantly mm. ERG conservative yeah. politics yeah. is, you know, pushing more people over to um, over to yes. Do you think there's also things like the difference at the moment between how the EU is responding to this energy crisis? If you look at the amount of which people are paying for their energy over Europe, and it's not that it hasn't gone up, of course it's gone up, but nothing like here. I think the EU has done pretty well on on responding to energy prices it's it's in part coordinating across 27 member states on on the question of sanctions on russia you've got very recalcitrant and, and difficult member states like hungary in the mix but you've also got the fact that the different member states have different policies and the eu doesn't control all this so it is a question of, of good um negotiations between different member states with power for different things lying in different places. But, but the, there's a, a serious effort at solidarity and making sure, you know, that they're not contradicting each other, yeah. at least. Where, whereas, I, I mean, as I understand it, there have been, as you would hope, even, even with the state of our, our UK government, there have been contacts between the UK and the rest of the EU about energy supply and so on. But actually, one of the big differences um, is, that, as you know, is that the UK has, has almost no storage capacity. It got rid of storage it capacity. It got rid of it, yeah. yeah. Um, and in a crunch this winter, the, the EU will not do what more countries like France and Netherlands and others previously did, which is, you know, energy flows or electricity flows. I'm not a technical expert yeah. on this. Yeah. Both ways yeah. under, yeah. under the channel. Um, that may not happen. And so, you know, whether we might have to see some rotating power cuts, limits on use or, or whatever, I think the problem is in terms of that having a big impact on the debate here is it doesn't always get that much coverage, you know, and it, it's not talked about that much. And I, I would certainly like to see SNP politicians talking more about how the EU works in, in general and also how it's responding to this crisis and you don't have to agree with everything it does um but but to talk about it explain 
about it. And, and that needs to happen. I'm not just talking about Nicola Sturgeon or the, the First Minister, and, and I think she's very aware of what the EU is, is doing. But across the range of, of SNP politicians and MPs, MSPs, councillors, activists, and, and so on, I, I think we need to be talking yeah. a lot more about Europe and with enthusiasm, because although you know, I think if our conversation has sounded a bit gloomy today, I, my <laughs> gloom is about the UK government and what it's going to do to the UK and what it's going to do to Scotland. But I don't think, I'm not at all gloomy about Scotland's path to the European Union as an independent country um, and, and the benefits of that and, and the way that that can happen. So, so, you know, there are tricky things to negotiate. There are issues around the border. There are issues around the currency. There are politics. But as I said earlier, the politics around Scotland is not going to be like some of the politics around the Western Balkans applications to join. Um, we haven't mentioned Spain, amazingly. It usually comes up <laughs> as an issue. But as long as the UK recognizes an independent Scotland, then there's not going to be an issue, frankly, around yeah, yeah. Uh, all the EU member states recognizing an independent Scotland. But yeah. I think, you know, so I think the, the extent of instability and, and damage in the UK in the next couple of years, whether trust lasts that long, um, that's going to impact on, on Scottish independence in various ways. So as we've said, it may increase support, I would imagine, for Scottish independence. It may damage relations with the rest of the EU, that might, well, that will impact onto the, the pound and that may impact onto SNP policy on currency. And depending how long this instability goes on or whether a Labour government comes in and, you know, at least is more sane and sensible than a Tory government, that may impact on, on how long it takes Scotland to join the EU if it's changed uh, legislation, gone for deregulation and, and so on and so forth. But but assuming we're talking, you know, if we're talking about 10 years time, that's, you know, a lot could have happened. But if we're talking about three years time, Scotland won't have diverged so much as, as to make me say, you know, that's not going to take four years to yeah. join. It's going to take yeah. Yeah. much longer. And then at the end of the day, you know, if you're going independent, you're going independent for, you know, for the decades and decades ahead. So whether it takes you three years to join or seven years to join, I understand why people care about that. But as we've discussed at some length, in the meantime, there's a path, there's an association agreement with the EU, there's inclusion in programs. You don't have to wait to join to sort of get back into a lot of these programs. And so, so I'm perfectly an optimist on, on that side of it. I think that's a good place to stop. I um, really enjoyed talking to us. Thanks for, for coming on and, and speaking to us. Very happy to do that. Thank you. So, we, you know, we recorded that interview last week. I mean, it's what I said at the beginning. I just so appreciate the clarity and, and the way she, she makes what is a complex process a very um, manageable process. As you know, we have a, a YouTube channel called Indie Life Extra, and we've got a clip for each of the main questions that we asked Kirsty. So if there was an area that particularly interested you, pop over to that channel and you'll find them all. They're all shareable. You, know, you can get a shareable link. And if you want to share them with friends or social media, or whatever, feel free. Just to round off the show this month, we're just going to share a clip 
of Neil Richmond, an Irish politician. That came from Scotland's Choice podcast, which is uh, done by Drew Hendry. It's a really worthwhile podcast and he's got a lot of really good guests. He very kindly allowed us to use that clip. Neil Richmond. I'm a member of the Irish Parliament, the TD for a constituency in Dublin. For the last two years I've been my party spokesperson in European Affairs and prior to that I had the joyful role of being the chairperson of the Irish Senate's Rights Committee. I would say Ireland's accession to the EC 50 years ago this coming January is the most important decision we've made uh, since independence and I would argue that we were never truly independent until we actually joined the EC. For so long, our interest rate, our currency rate, was just set by the Chancellor of Exchequer, even though we had gained independence in the 1920s. We still ate everything. About 55% of our exports went to Great Britain in 1972. Today, they're less than 10%. It allowed us to open up economically, not just to Europe, but to the world, because all of a sudden we were part of the world's largest economic bloc, a very powerful um, trade body negotiating with others that allowed us to get access on very, very favourable terms to markets. Only recently, really good terms with Canada and Japan, Mexico, Southeast Asia, much, much larger markets than what we'd experienced before. It gave us protection in dealing with large corporations to ensure that um, goods were up to a high standard, that our airways were kept clean, that our waterways were kept clean. And one thing, I suppose, that in terms of the social progress, Ireland in the late 60s, 1970s, it was, it was a very conservative place. And it was a very conservative place and, and up until very recently. But that transformation, I would argue, fundamentally began when we joined the EEC and Irish people had the opportunity to live and work and study across the continent. It wasn't just simply having to emigrate to Edinburgh or Glasgow or London or Birmingham or Manchester for economic necessity. It was also the opportunity to go to Erasmus in Madrid or Interrail or, you know, Irish builders who went and worked on the building site before the Barcelona Olympics or rebuilding Western Germany or whatever it was. And Ireland of today is completely unrecognisable um, to the Ireland of the late 60s and 70s. I just think it, it's just so heartbreaking when you, you just think what we've lost. Yes, um, yes. Suppose the positive thing is, yes. and we can have that back. And um, we can have that back. I mean, it's just a short clip, isn't it? And I was just aware I had a, a, a quite a mixed response mm -hmm. in myself going, you know, sort of a bit swirling round. And, and, and one is a sort of, oh, you know, what we've, what we've missed by not being able to win the referendum back in 2014. But, you know, on the other hand, it's all there to be regained in actually a, a, a better way you know as an equal in in the eu so yeah. i you know I, it was really good to listen to him in terms of what um what, how he thinks ireland has benefited from that and um i was going to say fingers crossed we'll be back in there ourselves but i'm not even going to say fingers crossed because we just need to get on and do it don't we yeah it just it makes no sense not to hope you enjoyed that and uh, as we say feel free to share well any of the stuff we do that's why we do it and um, try and give you something that you can take out of the indie bubble and into the yeah. the real world so next month we might be talking a bit about what's um, come out of the, the supreme court case because um, that's happening so the, the judgment won't be handed down but we will at least um, have been able to watch the proceedings for a couple of days so we may have some comments someone in to kind of uh, help us just kind of think our way through what, what was in that 
it could be that we're ent we are now entering the last year of campaigning before a referendum and uh, we, we, we might want to start exploring that again. Yeah. Yeah. Bye now. Bye now. Well, hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for listening to our special bonus Tuesday episode of the Scottish Independence Podcast. We'll be back in our normal slot on Friday. This week we have an event from Yes Sky, whose guest was Ian Stewart, a retired RBS senior banker and, and active member of the Scottish Currency Group. This event was recorded before the Scottish Government issued the latest in its series of papers, which is on the economy. So by the time the podcast goes out, we'll have had that paper and it'll be very interesting to see how they compare. Catch you later. Bye now.